tragic accident claimed the life of a four-year-old girl, and her father, Grove Norwood, naturally cried out to God with a question every one of us would be asking in those circumstances. And I stuck my fist in the air and I said, where were you? How could you have let this happen? Nothing good can come out of this. I said, you cannot possibly do anything that is such a greater good here that would make all this worthwhile. When I got worn out, I walked back to the house and I stopped in the middle of the yard and turned around and I looked back at the lake and I said to him, my father in heaven, but if you can do a greater good, let me live to see it. You're about to hear about the greater good that God did accomplish through a horrific tragedy on today's Focus on the Family with Focus president and author Jim Daly. Uh, John, the man Grove Norwood, we just heard that clip, he was on last time talking about the death of his daughter and someone he befriended uh, to take care of that person's family, to nurture that family, to do what he could to uh, show orthopraxy, to do the Word of God in that family's life, to patch a roof, to bring him a stove, to, to do what he could. And that ended up being the man that accidentally uh, killed his daughter on a road with a hit-and-run accident. Mm. That was a powerful message last it time. It was. Um, today, we want to continue that story, mm-hmm. uh, not only of forgiveness toward another human being, but really uh, forgiveness in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. When things that are hard happen to us, it's easy to allow a root of bitterness to grow in our heart, mm-hmm. not only toward the person that did it, but at, for Christians toward God for allowing it to happen. And we want to continue the story today to really put the final touches on God's story in that regard. And Grove, it is wonderful to have you back here at Focus on the Family. Thank you so much for having me back again, Jim. Uh, Grove, uh, last time you said with great emotion, uh, you went through the story of your daughter. And I, again, would encourage people to hear that because it's beautiful, it's tragic, and yet uh, the story today that you're going to continue to tell Uh, really does show God's providence in our lives and Mm -hmm. his ability to work out these things for good, as Romans 8, 28 says. Uh, Let's pick up where it left off last time. You challenged God and said, if this is going to amount to something good, let me live to see it. And you said you had a sincere heart when you did that. Yes. Uh, The first year goes by. What was happening? Well, uh, the greater good uh, began at the funeral. And uh, I did not realize it at the time. That prayer I prayed was left at the lake and left with uh, God. And I didn't think about it anymore other than I knew that I had asked him for the greater good. Um, At the funeral, I, of course, wanted Ulysses to be there. To me, it was a no-brainer. He needed to know without any question of a doubt that he was forgiven. He loved Joy. She loved him. And so... um, Some strange things began to happen, Jim. Um, I had uh, the black man who killed my daughter sitting beside me at the funeral with his wife. You had Uh, them join you in the family area. uh, Yeah, and uh, the rest of my family was sitting on the second row, uh, my brother and others on the front row. And um, she didn't have a dress to wear to the funeral. I knew what she had in the closet. So I asked some members of my family to go take her 
uh, to Walmart and get her a nice little dress, and that's what they did. So people heard these things, and they thought this is really weird that we'd he'd have. I mean, what is going on here? And other things happened, and people began to talk, and they began to email. You can't believe what's happened. We saw the funeral, and here it is. And then when they went to the church service for the memorial service, the two men, black and white, he, they're walking in holding hands. I didn't remember that, but they told me. Ulysses and I were holding hands, walking in, mm. along with uh, the others of the family. And we sat together side by side along with the family on my left. Ulysses and Carrie were on my right. This was all weird. They started emailing one another. And an email reached Colorado Springs. And a young man in a church up here in Colorado Springs was sitting in a pew one day telling uh, his friend about this weird thing that happened down in Texas where this black man and white man, etc., etc. And uh, the one said, well, I I don't believe that. That's just, well, you better find out. And so he called my pastor from Colorado Springs, and uh, the pastor said, well, yeah, but you haven't heard the whole story. Uh, There's a whole lot more. The young man that heard the story happened to know Promise Keepers. He tells Promise Keepers the next week about this. Promise Keepers says, I wonder if he'd let us make a little short movie because Promise Keepers back then, as you know, were doing huge meetings with fathers and sons Mm -hmm. and bringing issues to bear for fatherhood. And um, so they called me and I said, no, I don't want to put people through that. And uh, they called me again. And then they wrote a letter. And the letter was so compelling. I said, well, okay. Promise Keepers brought a film out. 19 minutes long, and in the summer of 2004, it showed to somewhere between 700 to 800,000 men, so mm-hmm. I am told. I saw all this happening, and I looked up, and I said, is this the greater good, Father? How could this be happening? And I was so selfish at the time, I was not willing to trade joy for that little film and mm-hmm. all that was going on. And so my life didn't change. I kept teaching Sunday school, going on about my business, and just, uh, you know, Nothing changed until one day at church in the fall of that year, long after summer was gone and the movie played out, I got a tap on my shoulder. I turned around. There was a black man there in my church. It was Sunday. The service was over. And he said, are you Grove Norwood? And I said, yes. And he began to cry. His eyes welled up with tears. They turned red. I'll never forget the look on this man's face. He said, thank you. He said, I saw the movie of your little daughter that Promise Keepers made. And I became a Christian. It changed my life. And Mm. I came out here to see if all this was true. Mm-hmm. And if it really happened, then I want to say thank you. And I was crying by that time. But I hugged, we hugged. And I said, well, what church did you see it in? He said, no, it wasn't a church, Mr. Norwood. It was a penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. Mm-hmm. I said, what? The penitentiary? And I looked up in my mind's eye thinking, Lord, is this the greater good? It's it, Joy's in prison. They're watching her in prisons. And I asked the Lord, what does this mean? I wasn't ready to trade her for that. I could not yet say, it's been worth it, Lord, that now men are coming to Christ in prison. I told my men at uh, Sunday school and uh, in my prayer group on Wednesday mornings, Joy's in prison. They said, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do, Grove? I said, I don't know. And some of the men looked and said, they need to see this little short movie from Promise Keepers. Now, let me ask you this question because it's obvious. Why? Why did that message of your forgiveness and your daughter's situation, why did that resonate with men in prison? Well, I know the answer to that now, but at the time I did not because I did not know what a man's heart or a woman's heart is like 
who has been judged guilty by everyone and locked up for it. I did not know what they're dealing with. So um, about four months later, I was sitting in the same chair and uh, at church, the service was over, another tap on my shoulder, Jim. I turned around, it's a white guy I'd never seen before. I said, yes, sir, are you Grove Norwood? He said, I said, yes, I am. He began to weep. His eyes welled up. He said, thank you. I've got a new life in Christ because I saw the movie of your little girl. Forgetting the other guy for a minute, I said, what church did you see it in? He said, no, it was in a penitentiary in Rocheron, Texas. And again, I was in shock. I've mm. never seen either man again. They're both ex-cons. They came all the way to the country to say thank you. And God planted a seed in my heart. And I told the men on Wednesday, Joe is still in prison. Now there's another one who's come. We were stunned at this movement of God, but mm. didn't know what to do. Mm. And if I may tell you that about a week later, a friend in my prayer group came to me. Terry Witherspoon handed me a coupon and said, Grove, I heard about this Joy thing being in prison. And in the Houston Chronicle is an ad for a big prison symposium. They're having all these prison ministries show up at a church over in Houston. And I bought you a coupon, $10. I paid for it. You got to go. It's a free lunch. And when I went over there, I sat down in a room of 400 people. I didn't know a soul. But I went that Saturday morning. And you know we guys don't like to go to some place like this, a whole lot of us Christians, and you don't know anybody. And you sit down. And some man came over and walked. And actually, he squatted down because I was sitting. And he said, are you Grove Norwood? I said, well, yes, sir. He said, oh, the men in my prayer group saw the movie of your little daughter, Joy. Would you come and speak to them sometime? And I said, well, I'd be glad to. What church is it in? He said, it's not in a church. It's in a penitentiary. Mm. I'm the program director down here at the penitentiary on uh, on 99. Oh, man. And I said, you're inviting me in. See how mm. God does. Yeah. And so that began a series of little prison meetings, I started getting invitations mm. around Houston. But I need to ask you, yeah. when you come out after the film in front of these men, one, you're not used to doing this. I'm sure there's a bit of fear in you. These are, these are tough dudes. Mm -hmm. um, what were you feeling and what were you sensing? And how did you respond in that moment? Mm. Well, uh, that's a very good question. And it has a, a simple answer, Jim. I didn't know what to say. When I saw their faces, I was stunned almost to tears myself because I had never stood in front of 300 grown men, black, white, you name the color, the nationality, and seen them so broken and so waiting to hear something of hope and encouragement. These are well, tragic lives. They are. I mean, things, and terrible what, things. what I was told later is that the film gave me instant credibility with inmates. Mm. Credibility for a free world person, a volunteer who comes in, is not easily earned. It takes time and consistency and doing what you say you're going to do before the men come to believe you're real. But they told me later, because of the film and the story, they had no problem saying, tell us what's on your heart, Grove. We want to hear from you. Mm. So the I didn't know that. The beauty of that is that your daughter, Joy, Open the, the door. door. Exactly. Exactly. Is that the greater good? Oh, wow, Lord. Maybe this is something I've grabbed onto that, that's flying away with me here. And I began to watch. So I shared with them a little bit. First of all, I always disclaim the forgiving thing. I never hold myself up as a, as a paragon of forgiveness. As I told you earlier, it was an accident and he was my friend. 
So I didn't even think about forgiving Ulysses. God did a story in spite of that because there was a time in my life when I hated someone so badly and was so angry. And I tell the inmates about that period of my life Mm. and how as a Christian man, teaching Sunday school on Sunday with a big smile and yet in my heart uh, hating to such a terrible degree. And I did not know what to do with it. And I share with the men how I got through that. Because when I ask them, what's on your hearts? Tell me what you need to hear from me. First question, why should I forgive someone I hate? They deserve it. They deserve to be hated. I am right in feeling angry toward them. They abused me. They, they shot my mother. That's why I shot them. I mean, the stories you hear are just terrible. How do okay? you respond? Well, that's a question I had to think about. I had to go away. I said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to look at what Scripture says. You're asking me tough questions. I've never thought, why should I forgive someone I hate? And then another question from the floor, how do you forgive someone you hate, Grove? I'm willing to, but how do you start? You just can't look in a mirror and say, I forgive that sorry rascal. I mean, the anger is there. The hurt is there for years. I've watched my mother be abused. I've watched my this and that happen in my life. My father loves prison more than he loves me. That's why I'm in prison, because he never would come home. And my anger, how do you forgive someone you hate? And I began to collect these questions, Jim, and that began... Uh, the movement of God in my heart to go back and talk to them, look in the Word, find out real answers, not sermons, but help them with these practical matters. Another issue that came up was, what is this about forgiving yourself? Uh, How do you do that? And is that in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? Hmm. I had to go study on that and come Hmm. up with an answer. And gradually, these questions were forming little talks that I give them. Those talks formed a seminar. And so now, Part of what happens is I keep getting invited back to do either a talk or a morning seminar in a men's or women's prison or a day-long seminar. And sometimes churches call and say, these issues are just as alive in our church as Mm -hmm. they are in those prisons. Mm -hmm. Grove, it would seem to me that so often in our Christian circles that we're struggling with this. We're not living it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the scripture says the world will know that you're mine because of the love you have for one another. Mm -hmm. That in some ways is an indictment too. The Lord's giving the world permission to judge the church. Are we acting the way that the Lord has asked us and instructed us to act? And for some reason, for many of us, it's hard to do. How do we focus on this so we're not hypocrites? Let me just say it straightforward. So we're not living a false life before the Lord. Um, When you're in prison, for example, there's a rawness and a truth in prison that's real. I either killed the guy or I didn't. Mm -hmm. And most of them know if they killed the guy. And they've got to figure out how they're going to get forgiveness for themselves as well as how they're going to forgive. How do you see that play out in that raw, tough environment? Well, let me say for your listeners um, that... I understand if you're out there saying, oh, no, here's another ministry, another guy excited about what he's doing for God, and uh, he's going into prisons. Uh, I understand that. Why would you spend all time and money uh, with men who've, and women who have killed and done the worst kinds of crimes? Why not just leave them in there, lock them up, and throw away the key, as they say? I understand that. So what I'm telling you, my friend, is that they were mean when they went into prison. 
and they're going to be mean when they get out unless something happens while we've got them inside. That's what the first thing I discovered as I began going in. The second thing I discovered was that it's a good thing to try to have fewer victims on the outside. Mm -hmm. And when these guys go out, the national statistics range anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70 percent that in 36 months, they're going to be back in prison. Mm. Why? They found another victim in your neighborhood somewhere, perhaps, and they're back in prison. Well, if we can help their hearts change through the gospel, through the good news of forgiving Christ, a forgiving Christ, then when they get out, they're going to have a morality that they didn't have before. And so that's the reason. And you better pray we can change them while we've got them in prison. Yeah, Uh, We're closing in here on time, but give us what's happened in Angola prison. You were drawn to that situation in Louisiana and then how you've applied that in Texas. Well, um, Angola called. I went to Angola expecting to see America's bloodiest prison. That was its reputation. Mm-hmm. I'd heard about it from the old That's timers in, in Louisiana. And I went over there at their request. The warden called. We have five prisons. Could you come stay a few days here on the Mississippi? We've got lifers over here. They never get out in Louisiana. There is no parole. When you get life, you die at Angola. I went over there with a few of our men from church and they showed the film and I gave some talks and um, I saw a peace in that prison that I'd never seen before. I saw a culture of safety, but it was so stunning. I asked the warden after the fourth day, what has caused this? I know you're a Christian warden, Warden Burl Kane, but you're just one man. What else? And he said, it's the seminary. We were forced to start some kind of educational program when all the teachers were fired because we ran out of funding. They weren't fired. They were terminated. And so um, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary said they'd start a little campus up here and start teaching some Bible. (laughs) And he thought, you know, Grove, he said, if I could bring morality, uh, that's the quickest way to get some peace in this place. Because it was bloody. It was bloody. The old timers here told me they would step over bodies on the way to Chow at Angola. I saw nothing like that. And I said, you're saying it's the seminary that has been the reason for all this? And he said, absolutely. The Mm -hmm. seminary has brought peace to Angola. Because when the graduates graduate, they go back into the yard and into places in the prison. They never leave because they're doing life. Right. And I said, has anyone from Texas come? Uh, to ask you for help for us to do one. He said, no. I said, would you help me? He said, yes. And 10 months later, by the grace of God, the first fully accredited four-year seminary in a Texas penitentiary opened. What you're saying uh, catches my attention this way. Uh, These are the folks that have had the most difficulty in life. I mean, they've done things. They've been tried, convicted, and there they're sitting in prison. This is the answer, isn't it? It is. It's the Word of God. It is the answer. And the other part of the equation is it takes, for most people, a broken heart to finally cry out, as it did in my own case as a fighter pilot, to cry out to God when you finally hit the wall. And folks, this is why you've heard jailhouse religion and you think, oh, they just, they go down the aisle in order to get a certificate or a piece of paper that says they're a Christian and they parole out and so forth. And there are people I'm sure who do that. They're grasping at anything to get their freedom. But let me tell you what's so real about a conversion in prison. 
People who sit in churches beside me along with myself, we don't want people to know our worst sins. Mm. I hide my guilt. I, I don't want you to know the worst things that I've done. And so we sit there not being held up in front of the world, but every man and woman in prison has been on the front page of a newspaper at some point in their career. They've been judged guilty by family. They've been judged guilty by the DA, by the jury, the judge. Everybody knows the worst thing they've done. There's no place to hide. They've been stripped of their identity, given a number, put in a uniform, stripped of carrying anything into that cell, and locked down. And when that happens to a person, and God meets them in that place, judged guilty, and they find out that someone will forgive them Mm -hmm. when no one else has, no one else matters. It is the most profound conversion you will find. Mm -hmm. And they are the army we're building through the seminary movement in maximum security penitentiaries. Because when our graduates in Texas graduate in 36 months, they're not going anywhere. They're lifers. They're long-term inmates. They're going to, I'll tell you where they are going to go, to another prison down the road. Mm. Six or eight of them are going to go and join the chaplain down there and begin working to help peace and a culture of safety and morality and spirituality and Christ come to that next prison. Mm. Putting all the story together now, looking back over these 13 years, 2000, when your daughter Joy was killed, and the prison journey that you've been on, the almost accidental way that the message of your daughter Joy got into prison, and how you've been able to access prisons, and the men coming to you saying, I have a life in Christ. Mm -hmm. I have eternal life, Mm -hmm. Grove, Mm -hmm. because of what's happened in your life. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. You look back now, has the greater good been fulfilled? Yes, it has. And let me just share another thing in the life of Christ. For your listeners, I'm reading from Isaiah 53, and I'll be very quick. That's the prophetic passage that describes the death of Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities by his wounds. All of these horrible things that happened to Christ happen in Isaiah chapter 53. And in then verse 10, it says, And it was the Lord's will to crush him and to allow him to suffer, because the Lord makes a guilt offering of his life. But he will see his children and prolong his days. And here's the kicker right here. After the suffering of his soul, we know it's talking about Christ here. Christ will see the light of life and be satisfied. When I saw that, Mm. I realized Christ is looking back after all this agony, and he's looking at what the greater good was for him to hang on that cross. It's the redemption, the offer of forgiveness for every man, woman, and child on this planet. And he looked back at all that, and it says he was satisfied. Mm. That means to me, he said, Father, it was worth it. Yes. And I don't want to do it again, Father. I don't want to go through all that crucifixion and that beating again. But that was worth it. And my friend, if you'll hang on, scratch and claw, cry your tears. One day, I promise you, if you are the called according to God's purpose and you love him, you will look back on what you're going through right now and you will say, just like Christ did in Isaiah 53 and just like I'm telling you right now, you will say, It's been worth it. Mm. 
Those are powerful words from you, Grove uh, Grove Norwood, our guest today on Focus on the Family. Grove, what a powerful story of forgiveness. Thank you for your vulnerability, for sharing from your heart, from those things that are so human in you, and for those things that are uh, of God that are in you. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. God bless you all. Well, it's our pleasure to get to know you here, Grove, and uh, what an amazing story that you have. And your countenance is really proof that God is alive and well, and He can forgive, and we're so glad that you are being used in the prison system, and uh, trust that those who are inmates themselves right now who are listening and separated from families and loved ones have found some encouragement and hope from what we shared here today. Our program was provided by Focus on the Family. And on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team here, thanks for listening in. I'm John Fuller. Well, that was powerful. It took a journey, and God did an incredible work through the pain that Grove went through. But in the end, when Jim asked the question, you look back now, has the greater good been fulfilled? Grove answered, yes. And that's the promise. If you are called according to God's purpose and you love Him, you look back on what you're going through right now and you will say, just like Christ did in Isaiah 53, it's been worth it. That's the incredible hope for those of us in Christ. If you are struggling with forgiveness, or maybe you're on that journey where you're still not convinced of the greater good being fulfilled, please know that we're here for you. We have an amazing team of Christian counselors who can connect with you in various ways, pray with you, and direct you to resources that will help you on your journey. You can call us on 031-716-3300 or get in touch via our website at safamily.co.za. Thanks for tuning in today. For Focus on the Family Africa, I'm Graham Schnell, inviting you back next time when we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.